you don't know me, my name is Bill Farley. I'm the founding pastor here at the church. We planted Grace Christian Fellowship in April of 2002, and we, we bought this building in December of 2006. So it's been a while, and things are pretty much the way they used to be. We're talking about ethics, and the foundation for Christian ethics are the Ten Commandments. So my assignment this morning is the first commandment. And I have on the screen behind me here, you can take notes. I've got lots of slides, so you've got lots. It should be easy to follow what we're talking about. The Ten Commandments in the Old Testament came on two tables. We have uh, the first table, which contained the first four commandments. And those commandments had to do with loving God. And then we have the second table, which contains the last six commandments, those commandments have to do with loving our fellow man. And those commandments, the first one on the second table is honor your father and your mother, which is the foundation of the social order. It's where we learn to submit to authority. It's where we learn structure in our lives, et cetera, et cetera. But the first commandment is really the crucial commandment of the Ten Commandments. Um, I'm sorry? Yeah. Okay, so here's how Jesus looked at the Ten Commandments, looking back on them from the, first, first, from, the New, from the New Testament. This is from Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Looking back at the Ten Commandments. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what has Jesus done here? He's just summarized the two tables of the law, hasn't he? First table, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second table, love your fellow man as you would like to be loved. And if we did that, all of us, on a daily basis, we would fulfill all the law in the Old Testament, is what, what Jesus is telling us. So the first commandment, let's look at the first commandment, which is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this is very important. I want you to notice that the first commandment starts with grace, just as it does in the New Testament. The first commandment, God says, he's going to say, now, here are the Ten Commandments, but the reason you should obey these Ten Commandments is because I saved you out of Egypt. In other words, God saving them out of Egypt came first, then they traveled to Mount Sinai, and God gave them the Ten Commandments second. It works the same way in the New Testament. God saves us and reveals his saving work to us, and then he gives us his commandments, the things he wants us to do. And our obedience to those commandments is a response of grace to God's saving work. So what's the first commandment? You shall have no, no other gods before me. Really simple, really basic. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, nothing in life is more important than me, or not to let anything become more important than myself. And here is the foundation of all Christian ethics. It all starts here. 
When we think about how we should live and what our life should be like, it all starts with this first commandment. No strange gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. So and important again to notice that the commandments start with a reference to grace. I saved you out of the house of Egypt, out of your Egyptian slavery, out of your bondage, and brought you to Mount Sinai, and then I gave you the Ten Commandments and said to you, obey these commandments. Why should you obey them? As a response of gratitude for my, my saving work. Works the same way in the New Testament. So what duties does the first commandment require or imply? Now, at the time of the Reformation, the Reformers in the different catechisms spent a lot of time and gave a lot of effort and energy to asking themselves, what does the first commandment imply? What, if I was somebody who was going to obey the, this first commandment, what would that look like in daily life? And I've just got five things here. We could have more things. We could say more. The Ten Commandments imply things to do and things to refrain from doing. So first we'll look at things to do. Here are the things that the first commandment implies that we should do. And the first one is to worship God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Okay? Now we come to the church on Sunday, we worship God. But a, but a real, somebody who's really obeying the first commandment will do that on 24-7. Their whole life will be worshiping. And when we think of worship, we usually think of worship as prayer and singing and that sort of thing. But in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, worship is always connected with obedience. In fact, worship and singing are never connected in the New Testament. That doesn't mean that singing isn't worship, it is. But that means that the most important part of worship that God is concerned with, with us is our obedience to him. We worship him and we obey him. So we worship him when we do family devotions, by obeying him, by doing family devotions. We worship God when we read the Bible. We worship God when we pray. We worship God when we go to work and submit to our employer. We worship God when we pay our taxes. We obey God by, by submitting to civil government. Second, glorifying God. Our whole life should be oriented towards how can I make God look good? How can my life make God look good? That may, be, that may mean having a beer with my non-Christian friends, and that may be refraining from having a beer from, with, if I'm around somebody that that would really offend. So the, the rule of life is, how can I glorify God? Thirdly, obeying him. The first commandment requires obedience. Fourthly, the first commandment requires depending upon God. If I'm really, whatever I'm depending upon or relying upon in life is my God. So whatever I look to for hope or, or help in time of trouble, uh, ultimate help or hope in time of trouble is is the God that I'm serving. So depending upon God is crucial. Now, God, most of us are not instinctively dependent upon God. Uh, so what God does is he disciplines us. He brings troubles into our life, problems into our life, and so that we, we have nowhere else to go but God, and we turn to God, and we learn to depend upon him. So depending upon God is not instinctive for us because we're proud and arrogant, and we're self-reliant by nature. But as the, as the process of sanctification goes forth in our life, God teaches us as we age and get older, as we grow spiritually, our life becomes increasingly a life of dependence upon God. And lastly, trusting in God. We trust him, okay? 
So since the sins, the first commandment implies that are forbidden. These here are some sins that that the first commandment implies we should we should not engage in: atheism or agnosticism. Atheism means I don't believe in any god. There's actually nobody that's that way when the if the truth is known. Everybody looks to something, somewhere, as an explanation of, of existence. And agnosticism, I know that God exists, but I don't know who he is or what he's like. So both of those would be violations of the first commandment, wouldn't they? Idolatry. We have, I grew up with a Roman Catholic. In the backyard, we had a pedestal about this high on a metal pole with a platform on it, and on the platform was a statue of Mary about this high and in the garden in the backyard. That was our, our life as Catholics. And my wife and I both grew up Roman Catholic. We grew up worshiping, Catholics would say, we never worship the saints or the statues, but they in fact do, because we did. And it was encouraged. And that is a violation of the first commandment. Faith in other religions. You're a Mormon. You're breaking the first commandment. You're a Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, you're breaking the first commandment. Some people will say, well, don't the Muslims and the Christians worship the same God? No, they do not worship the same God. Completely different gods. So if you're in any other religious system, New Age, you're breaking the first commandment. Unworthy thoughts of God. Here we, it's a sin that we all participate in, most of the time not intentionally, and sometimes we do intentionally, because we don't like the God that's in the Bible, so we change him, and we just invent a God on our own mind that we're comfortable with. That's a form of idolatry. That's a breaking of the first commandment. It's very important for us as Christians that we read the Bible and we submit to the Bible. We submit to what the Bible says about God, whether we like it or dislike it. I can remember vividly the first time I read Romans chapter 9. How many of you have read Romans chapter 9? And Romans chapter 9 talks about the fact that God chooses us from before the foundation of the world, not because we've done anything good or bad, he just decides, I'll save this one, and I won't save this one. And I remember how offended I was when I read that. I was sitting in a trailer in Muldrow, Kentucky. I was in the Army during the Vietnam War. I was a new Christian, and I was reading the Bible for the first time. And I came to that passage, and I thought, whoa, I don't like this. This is not popular. This is not how I want to think about God. But this is the Bible. So I'm going to accept this. I had a decision to make. You know, I could either reject that or find a way around it. And see, that would be an example of unworthy thoughts of God, entertaining unworthy thoughts of God. We, we don't want to do that. We want to entertain worthy thoughts of God. Lazy, half-hearted worship. We all do that. Double-mindedness. We're all double-minded, aren't we? Self-worship. Self-love. Pamper self. Coddle self. We live in a self-esteem age. Esteem myself. All these are forms of self-worship, and I'm replacing God with myself. And that's very, very offensive to God. It's a great sin. So we need to teach our children, for example, not to worship themselves, not to pamper themselves, not to coddle themselves, but to push themselves, to drive themselves, to be useful, faithful servants. And that's utterly counter our, the age we live in. And lastly, Disloyalty to God, okay? So, <clears throat> whenever we sin, the motive is simple. I've made someone or something 
or some ambition more important than God. In other words, something has become an idol, a false god. Now, violations of the other nine commandments is always first a sin against the first commandment. Why would I say that? Whenever I break another commandment, I've always first broken the first commandment. Can anybody, can anybody say why I would say that? Because in violating the commandment, you've gone against God's directions, which would be uh, on your list there, uh, not respecting God. Yeah. As soon as I disobey God, I'm one of the other commandments. What have I done? I've made something more important than God. That's why I've disobeyed. Okay, so, in fact, this commandment is so important that prohibitions against idolatry bookend the Ten Commandments. Look at the, the, on the bottom, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things... The wrath of God is coming. Who remembers what the 10th commandment is? Thou shalt not... Pardon? Thou shalt not covet. Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's horse, your neighbor's mule, your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's wealth, your neighbor's reputation. You shall not covet. So we have the first commandment and we have the 10th commandment, Paul's telling us, both saying the same thing. They're prohibitions against idolatry. The 10 commandments begin and end with prohibitions to idolatry. Violations of the other commandments always start with the violation of the first commandment. Obedience to the first commandment expresses love for God. It's an expression of covenant loyalty or love. So we said that one of the ways to sin against the first commandment is to be disloyal towards God. And one of the ways to express obedience to the first commandment is to... Uh, be, is to obey God, in other words, to be loyal to God, okay? Covenant loyalty is very important. In the Old Testament, the word for love is the Hebrew word hesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, the C is silent, hesed. Hesed love is primarily loyalty in the Old Testament. So it's usually tra translated in the New Testament, covenant loyalty, loving kindness, Thy loving kindness is better than life, for example. That's in the old King James. Loving kindness or covenant loyalty. It, when we move to the New Testament, the concept of love deepens with the Greek word agape, which has to do more with sacrificial love. But in the Old Testament, it was primarily a reference to loyalty. God loves us. He's loyal to us. And he's kind to us. And he's gracious to us. When we love God back, we love God with covenant Loyalty or hesed love in the same way. Here's the Shema. This is uh, the commandment. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Jews called the first commandment the Shema. They recited it every day. And it summed up the first commandment. I want us to read this out loud together because the Jews read this out loud every day together. Are you ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Let's stop there for a sec. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
you're a parent here today. You shall teach them. The pastor's not supposed to teach them to your children. The Sunday school teacher's not supposed to teach them to your children. The Christian school's not supposed to teach these to your children. You are to teach them to your children. Okay, let's, let's go. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Judy and I used to rent a house, uh, a cabin at Priest Lake every summer for a week from a Jewish couple, the Rogels. And as you walked in the front door, on the doorpost, on the frame, was a little tiny metal box with the Ten Commandments in it. The Jews were obeying this. Last thing, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, now, they weren't religious Jews. They were secular Jews. It was just a custom for them. But for us as a Christian, in fact, the Jews, when they walk through the door, and they will tap that little box as they walk through the doorframe, indicating their faithfulness to the Ten Commandments as they walk in. This is the Shema, and it sums up the first commandment, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Most common idols that we face on a daily basis, the first one is people. And I've sinned against this. You've all sinned against this. Fearing man. The second is your biological life. You want to preserve your life. The third is your assets, money, wealth. The fourth most common one is the approval of the world. And the last one is the occult and false religions. So we're going to get, there are other idols, but these are the ones that we face most commonly on a daily basis. We're going to go through just some texts that where, where we're told to love God more than any of these things. And the first one is in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own hate, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now notice, it doesn't say he might not be my disciple. It doesn't say it's not possible that he'll be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. So, here, Jesus recognizes that the number one temptation to idolatry will be people. I'm going to please, I'm going to break one of God's commandments to please people. And who does he pick on? The people closest to us in our family. Father and mother, wife and children, those of us that are husbands. Fear God, don't fear your wife. Now, this is difficult. and We all, we all sin against this. What this means is you stand up to your wife when she's trying to take the family in some direction that God doesn't want your family to go in. And if, you, and if you bow down to her and submit to her, what are you doing? You're loving her more than you're loving God. It's idolatry. And God sees that and thank God for the cross, which gives us, forgives us. How about your boss, your fellow employees, your children? I've sinned against this with my children and have had to repent. I've loved my children more than I've loved God. Brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what does this mean for us as believers? It means there's going to be broken relationships in our life if we're going to walk with God. We're going to hurt people. People aren't going to understand us. Close relatives are going to think you're crazy. 
It's going to it's going to it's going to mean broken relationships. It's going to mean pain to follow Christ. And we haven't even gotten to heavy persecution like the government coming after us. We're just talking about family. I've experienced this not so much with family, although some with family. My father, Jim and I were talking about this last night for some reason. My father's dead, but my father never understood my Christianity. I think he thought I was crazy. He was Roman Catholic. He was always convinced I was going to come back to the Catholic Church someday. He died convinced of that. Just didn't understand. And, you know, there's nothing I could do to make him understand. And I have a brother that's very upset with me because I tried to share the gospel with my dad. And my brother's a fellow Roman Catholic with my dad. And my brother's very distressed with me that I three times tried to share the gospel with my dad. And my dad told my brother, and my brother has turned against me. So we could go on and on and on. You've all had experiences like this, haven't you? And we, if we're going to follow Christ, we have to say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to go here. Second, love God more than your life. Go back to that text again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own biological wife, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we may come to a time, I hope we don't, but ominous clouds are forming over our culture. And unless you have your head buried six feet in the sand, you recognize that things are really changing in reference to our culture's acceptance or toleration of Christianity. The day may come when some of you may have to love God more than your own life and forfeit your life out of obedience to the Lord. And it's important for you to think this through and say, okay, am I willing to do this? And not just be fuzzy-headed about it. It may never come to that. But it may come to that. It's come to that for millions of Christians throughout, throughout history. In fact, there are more Christians being martyred right now than any time in world history throughout the world. Communist China, uh, in Russia, in the Middle East, Muslim lands especially. So, and it could be that way here in the States. It could be very costly to follow Christ. I was talking with a neighbor yesterday who's a Christian. They just moved their kids into the Oaks from public school. I said, how come? They said, because... The teachers at the public school were coming between us and our children. They were trying to take over the role of parents in the lives of our children in the public schools. And this is in a good public school district out in Spangle. And they said, we've had it. We're moving to the Oaks. Well, we're going to see more and more of that as time progresses. So we're talking about idols. The first one, relationships. The second one, my own life. Third one, your assets. Okay, assets are good. We want to have assets. Uh, it's the love of money that's the problem. It's not money. Okay, but here's what we have in Luke chapter 16. If then you have not been faithful in the, un, in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this is very applicable to me right now. I'm retired. I don't have a pension. All my financial security is, is rests on my assets. 
And I could sit around and worry about those assets all day long. Um, you know, if we have a big depression or the stock market crashes or one thing or another, what's going to happen? Or I can say, I can say, no, God, I'm going to trust you. You're going to take care of me whether I have assets or not. Okay. In other words, I'm, I'm saying, God, it's you that I depend upon, not my, the, my investments. And as long as that's the case, the investments are a good thing. But whenever I become convinced that I can't trust God, but I can trust my investments, what's happened? My investments have become my God. You see, see, see the difference? There's nothing wrong. Money is a good thing. It's the heart attachment. It's the heart dependence upon money that makes money an idol. And so we just have to constantly repent. When I find myself moving towards anxiety about my assets, I say, no, Bill, don't go there. No anxiety because you're... Your confidence is not in your assets. Your confidence is in God who will take care of you. It's not your money that will take care of you. And if all my money is destroyed, I still have God, and he, he will watch over me and take care of me. So the third big idol we're, we're, we are tempted to trust is money, assets. Love God more than the world. The fourth one is the world. Notice this is 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now notice again the black and white speech. All these things, I, <laughs> I've given you some really black and white texts here, aren't I? All dealing with the first commandment. You know, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, and sister, you cannot be my disciple. Uh, if you cannot serve God and money, there's no gray area. You're either serving money or you're serving God. No one can serve two masters. And so here we have the same thing with, with the world. Now, what is the world? Well, the world is our culture at large. And to love the world means I'm looking to the world for the approbation and uh, uh, what I'm looking for. I'm looking to the world for, I um, can't think of the word. Anyway, I'm looking to the world to give me something only God can give me. I'm trying to say. And the world is a fallen, sinful culture. And it will always be opposed to God. The world will always be opposed to God. So John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. We're not talking about the physical world here. We're talking about culture, fallen, non-Christian culture. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that the lust of the flesh would mean the craving from, to satisfy my desires, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'm going to buy that new Lexus so that people will look at me and think, man, he's really rich. He's really important. Now, there's nothing wrong with a Lexus, is there? Depends on why I buy a Lexus. But if that's the reason I'm buying a Lexus, it's idolatry. I'm looking for that car to give me the self-affirmation, the affirmation that only God can give me. I'm looking to the people around me in the world to look at my assets and say, ooh, he's really important. He, she's really important. They've really got it made. I'm looking to that to give me esteem. But I, if I'm really a Christian, the only person I'm going to look to to give me that kind of esteem is God himself. And as soon as I start looking to the world to do that, I've, made, I've replaced God with the world. Okay? That's the pride of life. 
And the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the fourth idol or potential idol is, or the fifth, I can't remember where I'm at, is to love the world. And lastly, love God more than false religions. This would mean yoga, acupuncture, the Masonic order is a false religion. They, they reject the divinity of Christ and the sinfulness of man, and Masonics are right from the pit of hell. Now, that's strong speech, I know, and some of you would be very offended by it because you don't really understand what's, what's going on, but, but that's just the truth. Water witching and dousing to find water for a well is idolatry. There's no scientific connection between water witching and water. It's a supernatural connection, which means you're dealing with the occult. Liberal Christianity. Most liberal Christianity is not Christianity. It's a false religion. And so it's a form of idolatry. That, and we have to be careful there because we have some friends that are a little bit on the liberal side, but they still believe in basic Christian doctrines. But then you have liberal, quote unquote, Christians who don't accept the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. They do not accept the divinity of Christ. They do not accept the sinfulness of man. They do not accept penal substitutionary, Christ's penal substitutionary atonement. And in that case, they are not, that's not a Christian religion, although they call themselves Christians. It's non-Christian. It's non Secularism, new age, messing around with things like tarot cards, Ouija boards, etc. I had to repent of Ouija board. When I was 18, before I met my wife, I was playing a Ouija board with my cousin. I'm not a Christian at this point. I'm Roman Catholic, but I'm not really a Christian. And we, and we said, spell out the name of my future spouse. And it spelled out Judy. Now, at the time, I didn't have any friends named Judy. I'd never dated anybody named Judy. I didn't, uh, you know. So I thought, well, that's a strange name. Why would I spell out that name? Well, because the devil was at work through the Ouija board. And he was trying to get, get me de to, to be, get involved with the Ouija board and become dependent upon him for my source of knowledge rather than the Bible. Most idols are good things that we've substituted for God. Money, we've talked about relationships with people, money, uh, the, the, the world could bring us many good things. So how can we tell when our relationships with one of God's good gifts has morphed into an idol? It's really simple. You will disobey God to get the thing we covet. Therefore, disobedience is always the first sign of idolatry. So take assets again. You're, uh, you, you don't give to the church because your money's too important to you. Um, you don't pay your taxes or you cheat on your taxes because money's too important to you. See, you're going to break one of God's commandments somewhere to serve that idol. And so you can always tell, again, money's a good thing. How do I know when money's become idolatrous? Because I will disobey God to serve money. Or I will disobey God to serve this relationship. How would you see that in loving your children more than you love God? How can you tell you're loving your children more than you're loving God? Because yeah, this... you, don't, you, don't, you don't treat your children as God wants you to treat them. So you don't discipline them when God wants you to discipline them. You don't set biblical standards for your children's ethical behavior. Um, that's how you know. In other words, 
I don't, want to, I don't want to offend that child, so I'm not going to discipline him, but I'm offending God big time because God tells me to, to discipline my child with a rod. Okay, so that's one way we would know. Yeah. There's other ways too. Okay, and let's, let's conclude with this. The gospel is our only hope. This is the, my favorite part of this whole lecture. The cross shows us, first of all, how God feels about idolatry, how serious this sin is in God's sight. Jesus had to suffer horrendous pains to atone for our sins of idolatry. I'm an idolater. You're an idolater. You may not be been an idolater right now, but you have in the past, and you will again in the future because you're a fallen, sinful human being. But God hates idolatry with a capital H, capital A, capital T-E-S. And we know that because we see what it cost God's son to atone for it. Remember I said all sin is, we always commit idolatry before we commit every other, any other sin. So all sin goes back to idolatry, the first commandment. And here's Christ hanging on the cross, suffering the horrible pains he had to suffer to atone for it. Secondly, the cross shows us what loving God looks like. What does it look like? Well, Jesus models what loving God looks like. He endured the scorn of the first century world. He was crucified naked on a cross, everybody laughing at him and jeering at him. He was willing to forsake the love of the, the world's love and esteem for him. He was willing to be misunderstood by people. He was, uh, he, the, Christ's whole life was single-minded devotion to the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That was Christ. That's not us. Thank God that was Christ. Because if it hadn't been Christ, another way to say this is that the reason Jesus died on the cross was, first of all, to love God, and secondly, to love us, because he was always obeying the first and the second commandment, wasn't he? And if he hadn't been doing that, we wouldn't be saved because his righteousness is imputed to us. And if there was something wrong with his righteousness, if he had in some way sinned against God, we wouldn't be saved. But Jesus never sinned against God. He always loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. And he went to the cross to show us what love for God the Father looks like. And secondly, he loved us. It's a big mistake for you to look at the cross and think, think the first thing that Christ was doing was loving you there. No. If he was, then you're not saved. You can't be saved because he would have been in sin. The first thing Jesus did on the cross was love his father. He was obeying his father. And then the spillover from that was love for you and I. Thank goodness it was that way. And lastly, thirdly, the cross shows us what loving people looks like. There's Jesus loving us more than he would want to be loved. And lastly, the cross or the resurrection is our justification. By that I mean, as you have said many, many times, when you put your faith in Christ, your faith attaches you or unites you with Christ so that his righteousness becomes yours and your sins become his. A wonderful transaction. And so here, here we are, sinners against the first commandment, but saved by amazing grace, by a God who loves us with an everlasting love. And if we're not attached to Christ, there's no hope for us because we're gross, rampant idolaters. And there'll be nothing for us but eternal blackness and darkness in the pit of hell forever. That's how serious 
idolatry is. And this is how wonderful the love of God is for us, that God sent his son, his only begotten son, to live the perfect life for us, to obey this commandment to the fullest, and to show us what it looked like at the cross, and then in the grace of God to get that imputed to us so that the Father considers us people who have obeyed the first commandment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. Father, thank you for the first commandment. Thank you for the black and white nature of this commandment. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your love, Lord, your great love for us. God, help us love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Are we early? Yeah, sure. Okay, my hearing's really bad, so you can ask a question, and I'll, I may have to ask you to repeat it. So go ahead. So are we in a constant danger of breaking the first commandment? Are we in constant danger of it? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, yeah, you are. So look what the first commandment said, uh, the Shema. Hero Israel, you love the God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Have you ever done that for more than about 30 seconds? No. <laughs> now, if there had not been original sin, if Adam hadn't sinned in the garden, you'd be capable of doing that. In fact, it would be your first instinct. It would be easy for you. But because we're all sinners and we're all born with a fallen nature, the capacity to love God this way is really not ours unless the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit indwells us and changes us, our ability to love God deepens and gets stronger. You know, as, as you go on in the Christian life, the way this love expresses itself more and more is a deep sense of unworthiness, personal unworthiness, and a deep sense of God's amazing love for the unworthy and his grace for the unworthy and rest in the fact that I can never get this done in my own strength. I'm, I'm trying to obey this commandment, but I'm resting in my unworthiness. Recognizing that God is a God of infinite grace. And what is grace? Grace is just God giving reward to those that deserve punishment. And God loves to do that. So that's a great question, Josiah. Anybody else? Uh, kind of. I can't when his head's turned, yeah. So, so as the rule follower that I am, I really struggle with that. Based on what you say, it makes, it's like a good place to be in a foreign spirit kind of way. Meeting God. Uh, and then also, it's a good mindset to know that those who would say, oh, we can live a sinless life. Like, I don't, I think I'm constantly breaking the first commandment. How yeah, can I yeah. even imagine? You can't. Yeah. See, this is why we need a Savior. You, we, we're in desperate need, all of us, me included. We're all in desperate need. I'm reading right now 1 Samuel, and, and uh, it starts, you know, with um, 
baby, uh, baby Samuel, who's about three or maybe five or six years of age, and God comes to him in the night and in, uh, initiates him into the prophetic ministry. He says to little, little Samuel, I have a terrible word of judgment for Eli, who is his, kind of like his father. So the next morning, Eli wakes him up and says, Samuel, what did God say to you? And, and the Bible says, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli what God told him. But because Samuel feared God more than he feared Eli, he told Eli what God told him, which was, God has judged your house, Eli. He's going to destroy you and your entire line and give the priesthood to another family. Now, how would you like to be doing that at age seven or eight years of age to your father? But that's what it means to love God more than we love people. Well, I'm reading that and thinking to myself, Bill, I, I can't do this. I'm a wimp. I don't know about you, but I think, and I have broken that. So many times I have feared people more than I've feared God. And so what do I do? I say, God, I know I can never measure up to this, Lord. I live by grace. Every day, 24-7, grace, grace, grace. This is the Christian life. There is no other Christian life. If you understand God's commands and requirements, you will give up on yourself, which is what you're supposed to do. That doesn't mean you quit trying to obey God. You do, but you don't live by, by, by you don't measure your life anymore by how I perform. You measure your life by how Christ has performed for me. Does that help, Josiah? I know Josiah has asked a great question. I know others of you are thinking the same thing. You're thinking, this is impossible for me. Yep, it is. It's supposed to be. So that God will get all the glory. That's the whole idea. Oh, great, great comment. Who else? Okay, time's up. Let's, let's break. It's quarter to 10. Let's go upstairs and get ready for the, uh, the Lord's Day.